Let's pray together and then plunge into our time together. Oh God, we are all children. No slice of the demographic pie is left out of that confession we sang. We are children of the Heavenly Father, nested in life as we all are. But now we come in this waning moment of summer. We come to wonder what vision you might cast for us for the journey ahead. So make it clear, right here, right now, let us all, preacher included, be listening carefully for your voice as we journey together. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's the question. If somebody came up to you, tell me how you would answer this. If somebody came up to you tomorrow and said, I have two tickets to Beijing, China, and free tickets to the Olympics, would you take them up or not? I mean, can you imagine? Wouldn't it be something to be at the, Olymp- the 29th Olympiad? This extravaganza that China through for the world. I tell you what, they may have been the sleeping giant. They may may have been the mighty, not quite introduced dragon of Asia. But after that last weekend, and I know that the opening exercises, most of them were after sundown, and so we didn't get a chance to see a whole lot of it. But you've seen the pictures since. After that, what what an introduction of the world to China. 1.3 billion people. And as I'm looking into all those faces in that city of Beijing... Where I've been, I'm thinking to myself, God, how how are you going to reach 1.3 billion with the good news of Christ? I mean, let's put some pictures up. This was this Athens was great, and uh, what was before Athens, I can't remember. And and maybe London will be great in 2012 if time should last, and maybe Chicago in 2016. We're making a bid for it, but I tell you what, there the Chinese nation displayed for us the glory. Look at that, the uh, the precision. The masses that were trained. What is there about the Olympics? Here's the question. See, what is there about the Olympics that captures our hearts? I know that there's this little bit of, uh, of patriotic nationalism that we all harbor because we're kind of cheering for the country that we're from. And we're 100 nations right here, so we all have our, our little quiet cheers. I understand this, this, this uh, patriotism, but that's really not the secret of the Olympics, is it? You know what the secret of the Olympics is? I, I believe you will concur. The secret of the Olympics is in that young blossom of budding youth, the promise of every nation's future. We look into those kids' faces. And there's a whole lot of vicarious going on, isn't there? I mean, I wish I could have done that at the age of 18. There's a whole lot of, could I do that still? No, you can't. <laughs> Give it up. Give it up. So there's a little bit of that going on. But really, what is it about? It's ah, our young, our young. Look at those athletes. And when those athletes stand as they do in front of us, and I tell you what, I'm going to just take a little moment to tell you that if you didn't see this race right here, I didn't see it live either. I saw it on the Internet by accident. It came across it. You look for the men's relay swimming. Of course, everybody knows Michael Phelps now. But you look for that. That will be the greatest race in the history of time, probably. And it's there in cyberspace. But when you look at these youthful faces, never mind the nationality, we understand that the Olympics are ultimately about our young and about the promise they embody for our future. Right? The wily king knows that that, in fact, is precisely the truth. And so, with his conniving 
cat and mouse logic, he has slowly backed the old man straight into the corner. Set him up. But when that old man, with his stentorian voice, thunders back to the king, echoing against the adobe walls of that royal chamber, when the old man speaks, we know the truth about the young. We didn't need the Olympics to know the truth. We know the truth about the young. I want you to find that truth with me in the Bible's second book, the book of Exodus. Go to the book of Exodus, please. This is our passage for today. Exodus chapter 10. You didn't bring a Bible? There's a pew Bible right in front of you. I'm going to give you the page number to the pew Bible because today it's a different translation. Yep. I'm going to tell you something. I'm in a new Bible. It's the today's NIV, the TNIV. It's a beautiful uh, translation. It's an update on the NIV. And the reason I'm drawn to it is because of its inclusive language. We'll talk some other time about the TNIV. You follow along in the uh, whatever translation you brought today. If you're new, you're a freshman on campus, a new student-to-be, you just bring a Bible every Sabbath. You'll be fine. But we do have a Bible for you. It's page... Did I give you the page number? 44. Page 44, Exodus chapter 10. Seven devastating plagues. I mean... Do you remember the earthquake in China? A few months ago, the earthquake in China. You remember seeing those pictures? That's what Egypt look like, looks like right now. Egypt has been sacked with seven plagues. There are three more to go. Unless Pharaoh right now changes his mind. You can't believe what Egypt is looking like today. As Moses, the old man, and his even older brother Aaron are once again in the royal chamber. So, let's go to Exodus chapter 10. Let's pick it up in verse 3. The seventh plague is over. Verse 3, so Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, there's that wily king, and they said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go. Oh, we know that line. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Verse 4, if you refuse to let them go, I will bring locusts into your country tomorrow. They will cover the face of the ground so that it cannot be seen. They will devour what little you have left after the hail, including every tree that is growing in your fields. Verse 6, they will fill your houses and those of all your officials and all the Egyptians something neither your parents nor your ancestors have ever seen from the day they settled in this land till now. Then Moses pivots on that old sandal and is out of there. Now Pharaoh has been playing cat and mouse this entire saga through. He's willing, he is willing to take it to the next level. But you know what? The court of Pharaoh is absolutely sick and tired of this craziness. And the officials of Pharaoh turn to him as those sandals slap and echo out of the royal chamber. They turn to him and they say, oh, king, live forever. Are you crazy? Have you lost it? Do you not understand that Egypt is in shambles? How much longer do we live with this divine scourge? The only reason we have today's story is because Pharaoh is feeling pressure now from his political base. He cannot afford to lose it. Watch. Pharaoh's officials. Moses left in verse 6, verse 7. Pharaoh's officials said to him, How long? 
will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not yet realize that Egypt is ruined? Pharaoh does the arithmetic really quickly. If there were an election today, I'd lose. And so, guards, get him back. He, can't, he, cannot, he cannot not do what he is about to do. But he is so crafty that he's going to set this up and force Moses to make the decision he'll make. Crafty. And the guards bring the two brothers back. Then, verse 8, Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. Okay, 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 I give up. I give up. You win. Go. Go worship the Lord your God. Go, 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 go. Hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. Tell me who's going. Tell me who's going. And Moses thunders back. Here it comes now. We will go with our young. And our old, with our sons and our daughters and with our flocks and our herds, because we are to celebrate a festival to the Lord. We will not leave this land without the young. We will not go if they are left behind. Ladies and gentlemen, mark it in your Bible. Mark that thundering premise for the community of faith. We will go. With our young. Or we're not going. We're not going. We're not going without them. 3,500 years later, has anything changed? It is not. Why do you think the Pope, this summer, made that long, circuitous flight from the Vatican to Australia to meet with tens of thousands of Catholic young? Because it's the truth of Christianity. It's the truth of Catholicism. It's the truth of Adventism. Nobody's going anywhere without our young. It's the truth of the Olympics. The young are the fresh blush of our future. And we're not going without them. We will go with our young. pastoral staff of the Pioneer Memorial Church for Monday after Monday after Monday after Monday now for over a year and a half every Monday we've been wrestling over the place the young have and ought to have in the life of this congregation that has been called to serve this campus prayerfully revisiting our mission what is our mission Who is our mission to as a university congregation? And one study that caught our eye, and I told the staff about it. We just came back from a two-day, 48-hour retreat, praying and planning uh, yesterday. I told the staff, I said, you've got to see this study that uh, Glennis Bradfield shared with me. Fascinating study. Study uh, is entitled The National Study of Youth and Religion, the largest and most comprehensive study of teenage religion, spirituality, conducted thus far in America, in the history of America. No more comprehensive study of teenagers than this one. Teenagers and religion? So that would catch anybody's attention, wouldn't it, if you're in a, in a church family? The study's been written up by 
a friend of ours just down the road at Notre Dame University. His name is Christian Smith. He is professor for sociology and he is the director of the Center for the Study of Religion at Notre Dame. He's authored the book, reporting on these findings, titled the book, Soul Searching the Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. So hold on to your seat. This, this is fascinating stuff. No study guide today, by the way. We're not starting the new series yet, so you just watch the screen. I'll put all the words that I'm reading on the screen and let them kind of sink in. You're just going to have to lock on to a thought or two. I think it'll work for you. Here he is now, Christian Smith. This is an op- a recent interview he did with Tracy Shire from the website Resources for American Christianity. All right, here we go. He's talking. Put it on the screen. I started off, okay, when we went into this study, I started off with a widespread assumption that teens are rebellious. Granted, they can be difficult. And every parent of a teenager is saying, Amen. Granted, they can be difficult. And I am sensitive to parents saying that their kids are giving them a hard time. But generally, we did not find teens to be rebellious. Huh? And that's up. We didn't find them that. We, we surveyed the largest survey in the history of America. We didn't find them to be re, uh, rebellious. Now, he said, I'm working with these presuppositions. Boy, he said, was I surprised. Here's another one. A variation on that theme is that I came into this work thinking that most teens would be hostile to church. We found that, in fact, they are not. That they are generally benignly positive about religion and that they think it is a good thing, a nice and positive thing. Isn't that great? They're not down on religion. They're not down on the church. Oh, he said, and I had another presupposition. Put this one up on the screen. I also bought into the stereotype that teens are fundamentally different from adults, that they are like a tribe apart or aliens that cannot be understood. Ah, how many of us have bought into that one? Uh, This is the common stereotype. And so I was surprised to find that this is simply not true. It sounds trite to say this, but teens are basically human beings. Now, the key word there is basically. Huh? They're basically, basically human beings. All right? They're basically human beings who want the same things that adults want. Recognition, love, security, and so on. Isn't that good? They're not this alien race that's in our midst. They're just like us. They want what we want. Okay, here's another presupposition. Oh, and this is good. Parents, if you are the parent of a teenager, listen up. I found that there is a huge structural disconnect when it comes to social interaction between teens and adults. There are very few... Boy, I tell you what, my, my little uh, lights are going off. Bing, 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 flash, flash. Look at this, boy. Look at this. There are very few opportunities for teens and adults to share ideas and have real conversations. Huh? I went into the study thinking, now watch this, that parents become less influential as teen peers take over. I'm the first of the guilty. I've gone all through my parenting of two teens believing that that is, in, in fact, the exact truth. That somehow during the teen years, there is a withdrawing from parental attractiveness and a a pushing towards peers. I went all the way through our kids' teenage years believing that was the case. And he said, it's not that way at all. Look at this. Parents have been sold a destructive mythology about their teens. And they need to realize how important they still are in their teenagers' lives. And how much their teens do look to them and value their opinion. Mama, 
She's still listening to you. He is still taking it in. She values you. He needs you. What's most important is for teens to be connected to adults. That's what they need, not separation. Oh, boy. There you go. That's what they need, not separation. Now, he's going to make one more statement that I want you to catch. But it's very interesting. Notice how Christian Smith describes American teenage faith and religion. Here's the phrase that he uses. These are some big words, but you'll catch on to it real quick. He calls religious faith and practice among teens moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, moralistic means, you know, you have you kind of little morals. You've got some morals. Therapeutic means it makes me feel good. It's, it's healing. And deism simply means I believe in a God. So American teenagers subscribe to moralistic therapeutic deism. Now I'll put the final quote on the screen. Essentially said, let me talk about teenage faith. There are five points about teenage faith. The first is that teens believe God exists. There's your deism. And number two, they believe God wants people to be nice and fair to one another. There's your moralism. Okay, yeah, they they want to be nice. And number three, they also believe that the purpose of life is to be fulfilled and happy. Kind of a therapeutic, yeah. Number four, at the same time, now watch this. They think that God doesn't need to be actively involved in their lives unless they are in trouble. And finally, listen carefully, number five, they believe that good people go to heaven. If you're good, you go to heaven. Now notice this conclusion. It is not the worst religion one could imagine by any means, but suffice it to say that it is not historically orthodox Christianity. It's not historically orthodox Christian Adventism either. It's a, it's a, it's a hybrid. It's just kind of this toss salad of faith. Exodus chapter 10, verse 9, And Moses thundered back to Pharaoh, We will go with our young and with our old, with our sons and our daughters, because we are to celebrate a festival to the Lord. We will go with our young. You know what? Even the political world knows this. John McCain. Have you ever heard of him? John McCain? John McCain. And by the way, I'm not taking political sides here. You will never know for whom I will vote this fall, particularly since I'm not certain myself. All right? But John McCain had a rather clever rejoinder to Barack Obama, who, you got to admit, this was something else. 200,000 Germans who came out there in Berlin to watch this American politician spend a few minutes talking about his dream, his vision for the world. John McCain, in response, you remember, put together an ad in which he had Moses. We're talking about Moses. He put Moses in the form of Charlton Heston. You remember the Ten Commandments, the sea party, there is Moses. It shows a picture of Charlton Heston as Moses. And then just for good measure, he threw in Paris Hilton and Britney Spears. You've probably heard about this one. A a, a rather unusual menagerie, by the way, of bedfellows when you think of Moses with those two girls. But anyway, the reality, and here's, here's where I'm going with this. The reality, ladies and gentlemen, the reality is that this nation, the young of this nation and the world have been energized by Obama's candidacy. I don't care where you are in the political spectrum. You have to agree. I have a young niece and her husband who recently graduated from Andrews University who are volunteers in the Obama campaign. 
giving of their time. University students from across the nation have turned out in droves to support this youthful candidate for change, as he puts it. And quite clearly, a political process that has either ignored the young in the recent past or has failed to energize them is now experiencing the dramatic converse with the young flocking to Barack Obama. And everybody's sitting up and saying, hey, what's up with this? What's up with this? I'll tell you what. Neither political parties nor the church can fail, must not fail. None of us must fail to note that the young are the base of humanity that we cannot afford to ignore. <laughs> you can't. To the death of our movement or party or institution, whatever. To the death. We cannot afford to ignore these. Moses said to Pharaoh, we will go with our young, with our sons and daughters, because we're going to celebrate a festival to the Lord. Which, by the way, is not to suggest that it's some sort of cakewalk in the park when you take on the young as your primary mission. It's tough work. In fact, I want you to catch this. This is the very same Moses... The Moses who has just thundered here in uh, Pharaoh's uh, royal chamber. Just a few months later, I want you to listen to the very same Moses. I'm telling you, it's hard work. Go to, uh, we've got to look at this, uh, Numbers 11. So you go past Leviticus, go over to Numbers, Numbers chapter 11. The same Moses is speaking here. He's, he is having an, uh, a, a knockdown heart to heart with God. Because, well, you'll, you'll pick it up here. Numbers chapter 11. In fact, in our series, The Chosen, this last fall, we happened to uh, run across this line. I want to go back there. Numbers chapter 11, drop down to verse 11. Moses and God are going head to head on this one. And so Moses, verse 11, he asked the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? Hmm? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me. Did I conceive all these people? Did I give birth to them? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse cares, carries an infant to the land you promised to their ancestors? What have you done to me, God? I am sick and tired of these young because they're all young. Why did you give me? Why did you do this to me? I mean, this is the Moses who said, oh, no, we've got to go with our young. They are so important to us. And now he says, get them out. Take them away. You can have them, God. They were yours in the first place. Take them home. I tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, the point is, listen carefully. Nobody said making the young our preoccupation or yours, making it our priority is going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. In fact, I was reading the South Bend Tribune, reading a newspaper about a Jewish humorist who came here to South Bend to lecture at the synagogue. Okay, there's a big synagogue in South Bend. A few months ago, he's lecturing and he was talking to the congregation about parenting when he made this statement. Listen up. If God had asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac when he was a teenager, it would have been no sacrifice at all. (laughs) You have to think about that one for a little bit. It'll get to you. (laughs) <laughs> oh, you want, me, you, want, you want me to give them to you? You can have them. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, when you, make a t- when you make a young adult, when you make a teenager, your passion and your priority, it's tough work. It's tough work. Moses says, I've, I've really had about enough, God. You can have them back. See? Nobody said it was going to be easy. 
But having said that, please note the striking contrast between how Moses talked, don't make me carry them, and how God talks. I want to end with this text. Go to Isaiah. This is beautiful. Isaiah chapter 40. And I love it in the TNIV. I love it in the NIV. It's identical here in this case. I love it in the NIV because the New King James and the King James just kind of miss the full flavor here. Isaiah chapter 40. Sylvia led us in reading it just a moment ago. Let's go back to it. Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, just one line, verse, verse 11, speaking about God, all right? Isaiah 40, 11, by the way, it's page 486 in your pew Bible. Isaiah 40, verse 11, He, God, tends His flock like a shepherd. And now here it comes, I just love this. He gathers the lambs in His arms and carries them close to His heart. Isn't that good? King James says bosom, but who talks about the bosom? I mean, please, New King James leaves the bosom in. I don't know. Do it this way. He car- Look at this. He gathers the lamb in his arms and he carries them close to his heart. He- and get this. Here's good news. Not only does he carry the young close to his heart, he gently leads those who have young. He not only holds the young close to him. He says, do you have young? Hey, are you a congregation with young? Are you? Are you? I gently lead you. Are you a parent with young? I tell you what, mom and dad, this is, this is something, isn't it? He not only holds that little junior of yours, that little sissy of yours, close to his heart. He gently leads you as you follow him. He just leads you. There's some of you who are new students right now and you're saying, you know what, I feel like a little lammy. I feel like I am way out of my element now, my comfort zone. You are, my friend. It's a part of the journey. You've got to get outside of your comfort zone to grow. You'll never grow if you stay in that comfort zone. But I'm going to tell you some good news. No, Isaiah just told you some good news. There's a God in this universe who holds you, new student, who holds you close to His heart. He's not going to let anything happen to you. You stay close to God while you're here. Pioneer Memorial Church will do everything we can to keep you close to God. You stay close to God. You're not going to be lost. He's going to carry you right next to His heart. By the way, this is the one who said, I am the good shepherd. And a good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Calvary. Calvary. Calvary is the gift of this God who says, I hold you close. He's already died for us. I mean, with with that investment on our eternity, don't you suppose He will care for that investment to the very end? Yeah, He will. And so we have wrestled as a staff. And we prayed over all of this. And as we have, it has become clearer and clearer to us as a pastoral staff and as an executive church board that we in the Pioneer Memorial Church have been raised up by God specifically, specifically to carry the young. And in particular, though not exclusively, in particular, the young adults of this university. Now, I wanted to have a chance to say this to you when the students aren't here. I wanted to have a chance to say this to you when the faculty are not here. They're across campus having their their, uh, fall fellowship right now. I'm grateful for the faculty who are here. I say it in your hearing. Now, look at our faculty. We've got the greatest faculty on earth. You don't have to convince me. I already know. I've had the privilege of working beside them for years now. Our faculty are paid to care for the young. Now, they do it because they want to, trust me. But they're paid. We won't get paid to do this. The Pioneer Memorial Church, which is this university's congregation, we will not get paid to care for the young. God says, don't worry. Never, nevertheless, they are still your mission. They are your mission. In fact, you think about this. When we come to the gates of eternity and God is standing there letting congregations through, 
if he does it by congregation. When God comes to pioneer, we're all huddled up together. Here we go, pioneer. They just called our name. When God comes to pioneer, we will be the only ones in the entire universe who will be asked the question, what did you do with those young I sent to you at Andrews University? Every four years, I gave you a new batch. What did you do with them? These young adults. Do you think he's going to ask the village church what they did with the young? Do you think he'll ask uh, Chicken Ming what they did with the young? No. He will ask Pioneer, what did you do with the kids at Andrews University? From a hundred different nations, they came. I sent them to you. What did you do with them? We'll have to come up with an answer. And don't all be looking at me at that moment either. I'll be looking straight at you. Ladies and gentlemen, just like the Olympics, Pioneer enjoys the most unique mission on earth, and that is, we believe as a senior leadership team, that in fact, we have been raised up for, yet the, for the sake of young adults. You're saying, hey, Dwight, come on, give me a break. We've got a nursery Sabbath school. Yep, we do have a nursery Sabbath school, but we don't exist for that nursery Sabbath school. That nursery Sabbath school exists because we're here for young adults. You take the young adults away from Andrews University, this church is gone. You take Andrews University away from this community, adios, Pioneer. We, not a one of you would be here anyway. You came because the university is here. You wouldn't be here, although we do have good fruit in this area, so the fruit is fine. Isn't that the truth? We're here because they're young adults. Take them away, our mission is gone. Don't you tell me that our mission is to Pathfinders. No, our mission is to young adults. What are you saying, Dwight? I'm saying that every ministry we have, from the nursery to Pathfinders to deaconing to eldering to greeting to Benton Harbor, to television, to radio, every ministry we have is to be a place where young adults can be drawn in, shaped and equipped for going out of here in four years and taken on the world for the Lord Jesus Christ. Every Sabbath school downstairs is a potential training ground for young adults. That's why we exist. We're under such strong conviction now as a, as a leadership team that, in fact, this is our one thing that we are to do with all our hearts and with all our might after loving God, of course, is to make sure that the young adults He sends to us are shaped, are trained, are equipped, are enabled and empowered while they're here, motivated, mentored and mobilized while they're here. That's our mission. If we fail in that mission, there's only one church on earth that God's going to say, I want to talk to you about that mission. I sent how many did you say to you? How many did I send to you? We're the only church on earth with the most unique mission in the world, just like the Olympics. Our mission is the young. It's young adults. I know I, I, I run into church leaders who tell me, Listen, let me tell you something, Dwight. We've tried to get volunteers from the college age. We have tried and tried, but I tell you what, they just don't have, a, they don't have this concept of showing up on time. You know what, my friends? You're going to have to now, you and I are going to have to get used to a whole different way of keeping time. If they don't show up till 10.20, then you say, on my schedule, it says you're coming tomorrow. You're going to be here this Sabbath at 10.20. Take them when they come. Teach them responsibility. Coach them into the importance of uh, promptness, whatever you wish. But it's your job. Don't you just watch. Ah, you didn't show up. I don't need you on my team. Are you kidding? I'll take you at 10.25. You just come and give me five minutes of your time. Give it to me every Sabbath. And by the time you're through four years of this, I'll send you into any local church anywhere on this planet. And you can walk into that nursery Sabbath school and say, I'd like to volunteer to help out with nursery. Why? Because I do this. I've been trained at Andrews University, the Pioneer Memorial Church. We exist to equip young adults so that they might transform the world by being transformed here. 
It's our mission to transform them. You can't look at the faculty and say, it's your job to teach them how to get through the local church. Are you kidding? The faculty are doing everything they can to get them through school. It's our job to show them how in the local church, the local body of Christ, you can be the best, best, the best kindergartner, the best junior Sabbath school class teacher, the best pianist for the youth Sabbath school, the best guitars. We're going to teach you to be the best that you can be. Best usher. Pioneer enjoys the most unique mission on earth. And that's why as a, as a, as a, a staff of pastors and as a church board, we are now convinced that our, 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 our ultimate mission needs to be expressed in language something like this. It is the mission of Pioneer. It is our hedgehog principle, for those of you that have read Jim Collins. It is the mission of Pioneer to transform young adults to serve the local church and the world for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our mission. That's why we do worship different in second service. We just try to find a way to make sure they get into this building. Everything we do exists for young adults. Everything. Because everything we do is a perfect training field, training ground for the young. All right, let me close with this. I've been brooding over a line written a century ago this summer. I've really been brooding over this, and and, and I will share it with uh, the students when they come back. Here's the line. Let me put it on the screen for you. A hundred years ago, these words were written. Little book, Education, page 271. Many of you have heard this line before. With such an army of workers as our youth rightly trained might furnish. You know, if we just had an army of these young adults, if we had an army of them, do you know what we could do? Look at this. How soon the message of a crucified, risen, and soon coming Savior might be carried to the whole world. How soon might the end come, the end of suffering and sorrow and sin. If we had our young adults mobilized, if we can send them forth, do you understand it is a divine strategy to finish the work through the young? How soon? We're going to start a series two weeks from today. Two weeks from today. It's entitled Primetime. The whole series is coming out of the heart of our young will go with us and this line a century ago. And this little piece of information. Last little Christian Smith. Let me put it on the screen for you. Fascinating in this National Study of Youth and Religion. One more line from him. Among teens, we found that inarticulacy... Let's see. I've never seen that word before in my life. I think he coined it. But what does it mean? Inarticulacy, it means the inability to articulate, the inability to express yourself. He said in this study, among teens, we found their inability to express themselves about religion is widespread. Now, hold on to your pew. Many of them simply cannot talk about what they believe or what is distinctive about it or what difference it makes in their life. Writes the sociologist in Notre Dame University. He's nailed it on the head. That's exactly the case. He said, what do you believe as an Adventist Christian? Well, you know. No, I don't know. Tell me. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Here's our theme text for the new series. Always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the reason of your hope. If we had a generation rightly trained of young adults who could testify, how soon? How soon? Now, notice this. I left, this, I left one more line out from Smith. American teenagers are not able to intelligently, clearly describe what they believe. But notice this. Here's the flip side of it. However, let's put it up, please. However, 
We did find teens who could talk articulately. They are the ones who have been intentionally and consistently communicated with by the adult world on matters of faith. Isn't that something? Ladies and gentlemen, that was our reason for existence as a congregation. To carry on an adult conversation with young adults who are sent from a hundred different nations and saying, let's okay, we can talk about this. We're not afraid to bring that one up. Let's, let's do a little Q&A right now. Let's talk about this. We have to have a conversation with the young. They need somebody to talk to them. Not just in the classroom where they're scribbling down for dear life for the exam, but just when I'm relaxed and I'm thinking, how would I ever articulate my faith to an atheist? We're going to tackle that this, this fall. How will I articulate my faith to an evangelical? We'll, 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 we'll go into that. In fact, on September 20, we're launching, in conjunction with Primetime, this new series, because this has got to be the prime time of the human race. Is there, has there ever been a more primetime than this one? And is there ever a more primetime generation than our young today? September 20, Contagious Adventist, Alpha Version, brand new, never offered it in public before. We're going to offer it beginning September 20. You'll hear more about it. Why? Because we need to be able to give a reason for the hope that is in us and do it with clarity. We need to have an adult conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, Moses is right. We will not go without our young. We will not go to the promised land and leave them behind. No, sir. No, your majesty. No, no, no. Our young must go with us. And so it seems fitting on this Sabbath before the new year begins that we as a people commit ourselves to the high calling. We will go with our young. And so I'm going to make an invitation. I'm going to invite some groups of people who have been called by God to work with the young to come forward for a touch and agree prayer. You and I will pray together. The first group I want to invite forward today are the people who professionally have been trained to work with the young every day of a school year. And I'm thinking about our teachers. I'm not just thinking teachers at church school. Thank God we have Ruth Murdoch Elementary School and Andrews Academy. But I'm thinking about you teachers that work in the public sector. Do you know what? I know public school teachers who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are just as much under the anointing and calling of God as a public school teacher as every private school teacher is. You have different parameters for how you can express your faith, but you are, the, you are the most convincing walking testimony. And we'll talk about your testimony this fall. You are the most convincing testimony that exists on earth in that public school. You are there by divine appointment. So, uh, come on. If you teach children from preschool to kindergarten to first grade to through the ceiling beyond graduate school, if you have been called by God to teach the young... Today, I want to invite you to ask for a double portion of His anointing. I want you to come forward. Be proud that you're a teacher right now. Wherever you're in the back of the balcony, come all the way forward. Come all the way here to the front. I'd like to invite the teachers who are here. You teach in graduate school, you teach in the seminary, doesn't matter to me. You teach the young. God has raised you up to teach the young. Would you stand and come forward here, please? And while they're coming, I need to say to those of you who are retired as teachers, you used to teach in public school, you used to teach in church school, you used to teach in the university. Listen, my friend, you come forward because you are the seasoned veteran. You can put your hand on somebody. We're going to have a touch and agree prayer here. You can put your hand on somebody and say, hey, buddy, I know exactly what you're going through. I used to have butterflies in my stomach every time this year, every time when I knew that the new year was starting, I had butterflies in my stomach. You come forward.
Press right here to the front, please. Come as far forward as you can. I tell you what, teachers, we are so grateful to God for you. You don't understand what you're doing for the kingdom of heaven. You, by virtue of your anointing, you're part of his strategic plan to take the young with us. God bless you. God bless you. While they're still coming forward, I want to speak to another group here because we have a bunch of us here. I want to speak to the volunteers who work for our youth, our young, from zero to, I don't know when it's, when it's through your being young. When is, it, when is it you're through being young? 50 or 51? <laughs> you who work with the young right through to wherever that ends. You know what? We've got the, we, we have the best Sabbath school teachers on earth. These are the ones that ought to be training. They're going to be training. They're going to be equipping a whole other generation. We don't thank them enough. We don't pay them a penny. They are given Friday night after Friday night after Friday night so they can have Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath. If you are a volunteer with the young from zero to whenever, would you mind coming forward as well and just surrounding these teachers? We're going to just surround the teachers right now. Every volunteer that works with youth, we are so grateful to God for you. There are a whole bunch of you here. Don't look around and say, am I it? No, you are it. You just come forward. Please. You work in the nursery. You work in the kindergarten. You work with the juniors. You're there with the early teens. You're there with the youth. You're there with college students as a volunteer. God bless you. Thank you, all of you. God has called you through your volunteer ministry to shape an entire generation for the kingdom. You're here because God has gifted you. And you have responded to that gift in us. Thank you very, very much. We're proud of you. And those of you that are coming in the back, just go ahead and come right on down here to the front, please. There's one more group, and there are probably a bunch here. If you are a parent, if you are a parent, you may have brought your child, you're that, little, that, that, that precious little sheepy, for the first time she's leaving home or he's leaving home, maybe you're here with your new student. Parent, and this is not a call to students. We've got their time at another time. But if you're a parent here, if you're a parent of a, of a, of a six-month-old, if you're a parent of a 12-year-old, a teenager, if you're a parent of a young adult, some of us, our kids have left home. But you know what? I've learned one thing about parenting. There's one prayer that parents pray more than any other prayer on earth. I, you can trust me on this. It's more than their own health. It's more than their own financial security. The one prayer parents pray more than any other prayer is, Oh, God, save my child. Save my child. If you're a parent and your child is still alive, I wish you'd come forward. Just push into the aisle. If you can't get into the aisle, just stand where you are. You say, God, I need that anointing. I need the Holy Spirit to come on me. I need whatever it is you have. Save my children and use me to the maximum ability to save my children. Do whatever it takes. God bless you, parents. I'm telling you what, parents, you are the unsung heroes the rest are put here by volunteering and by profession. You got it because God gave you that boy. God gave you that girl. And He says, until your life is over, or His or hers, you pray and you pray. And I will contend with Him who contends with you, Isaiah 49:25, and I will save your children. I'm holding God to that promise, ladies and gentlemen. I'm holding to Him. I'm going to say to God, when I meet Him at the front gate, I'm going to say to God, if you hadn't meant that, you shouldn't have put it in the book. You shouldn't have put it in the book. 
Because I believed you. I believed that you said you would save my children. I'm into liberty. I'm into freedom. But you want, if you want to go ahead and force my kids, go ahead. No, I'm not going to say that. I believe in liberty. I believe in freedom. And God, if you've honored that, then blessed be your name. But I expect to find out that you have done everything that you could to save my kids. And God will say, I did everything I could. I did everything I could. And they're here. Hallelujah. Because I did. Praise God. And if you're still sitting, I can't think of a category for you right now, but I need you praying for the people who are already standing. And so would you stand as well, please? Let's pray together. Let's just, and, and we do touch and agree here. And so would you just touch somebody beside you? Touch that mother beside you. Touch that father. Touch that teacher. Touch that volunteer. Just put your arm. Take a hand if you're more comfortable holding a hand. That's fine. Just make sure that everybody's touched. Everybody in between the pews. Touch somebody and we will be, we will be connected in this prayer together. Let us pray. Oh God, we have heard the word this morning. In the, in the thunder of Moses, we will go with our young. And that word touches us. Oh Father, we must go with our young. We're not going to the promised land without them. We can't. We can't even bear the thought of it. So we touch and agree. We touch and agree that we are standing right now with these two quiet prayers. Prayer number one, O oh God, do as you say you do and carry our young very close to your heart. Do whatever it takes. Just hold that boy, hold that girl, hold the 3,000 who are coming to us. Hold them close to your heart, we pray. Prayer number one, bless our young. And prayer number two, dear Father, bless those of us with young. We have them as teachers. We have them as volunteers. We have them as parents. Oh, God, gently lead all of these who are standing. And when the school bells ring on Monday, and the hallways begin to echo the voices of the very young, and the teenagers, and the young adults, Give every teacher here a steel determination to make this the year. For you will save her children through her. For you will save his classes through him. Bless the teachers in public school and, oh God, in a special way, we do not forget that we, that we have only one school. That we have invested every penny we can. And that's Ruth Murdoch. We remember our own Ruth Murdoch Elementary School and our own Andrews Academy. Bless these teachers. May they know that they are under your anointing. And for every parent here who dries an eye and says, Oh, please, dear God, see that tear. Register that prayer and answer it one day. you got the scars on your hands, Jesus. You can do it. We know you can. And for this congregation that will soon be the home to all these young adults, please, dear Father, may we do whatever it takes to shape them so that they might by the Spirit be transformed and go forth, how quickly, how soon the end might come with such an army as this.
And so we stand before you. We touch and agree that we covet this anointing 24-7 for the new year before us. Let all those who are standing say, Amen and Amen. Amen.